George, Peterborough's Art and Cultural Podcast. Well, I've just been listening to a Doug Ford press conference, so I, I apologize if I sound a little confused and entangled. Anyway, blame it on Doug. Well, I thought it was time to hear the voice of Trent. Trent University, their issues and concerns through the, its gem of a newspaper, Trent Arthur many great writers over the years, such as Nick Taylor. So I'm speaking today with Evan Robbins, a reporter and third-year cultural studies student. We discuss the dark cruelty Trent and most post-secondary students are trapped into these days. There's many terrible things they have to face that we don't take account of very much of in the media. We discuss the role of the Arthur itself, the student housing crisis, the food shortage for students, which is not something you would have even thought of when I went to university, the grim situation with Trent Durham these days at Satellite Campus. I've been there. It's a sad place to be. The fraud being done on international students in general, and certainly done at Trent. And the total mess with Peterborough Transit, that affects the students a lot. But on another side, you'll hear us discuss cultural studies a bit ourselves, and our unified mutual love for Mark Fisher. So there's maybe some good things right there. And I think maybe some coffee notes as well. Anyway, here is my discussion with Evan Robbins. You yourself, I see that you've written a few pieces for them. So um, how long have you been at the Arthur yourself? Uh, I've been working for Arthur since summer of 2021. So this is my second school year writing for them full time. Okay, great. And am I correct in saying that you are, I don't know what year you're in, but you're in cultural studies at Trent? Yeah, that's correct. I'm in my uh, third year of cultural studies. Okay. All right. So you're just, would you be a trail college then? Is that where you're at? Or? Uh, yeah, I guess technically trail is my home college. Yeah. Uh, I'm affiliated with Zosky, but, you know, classes tend to go both on campus and at trail. So it's it's all over the place. Okay. All right. Um. Well, I'm just uh, curious because uh, I've, um, I've 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 had an interest in that myself before. Uh, what what connect, uh, what uh, attracted you to cultural studies in the beginning? And uh, I guess what is sort of uh, if there's any important discoveries or certain writers you've made in the last uh, year or two? Oh yeah, I think that's a really interesting question actually mm-hmm. because I think 
a lot of people aren't really sure what cultural studies is when I tell them that that's my degree. Uh, what initially attracted me to the program is uh, when I was in high school, uh, you know, looking towards graduation and deciding where I wanted to go to university. Um, I was really looking towards doing a program in the visual arts. So I applied to um, OCAD for their illustration program. I applied to Toronto Metropolitan University, which of course was at the time called uh, Ryerson for their fashion design program. And uh, I kind of stumbled upon Trent because my close friend was really enamored with, I guess, like the greenery, the kind of outdoorsiness of the campus mm. and with the environmental studies program, which she's currently in. Um, and so I was looking through the undergraduate calendar they had put out that year and reading about the cultural studies program. And one of the things that really stood out to me is like this emphasis on research creation, on workshop classes. So that's what really drew me in initially is this idea of being able to do a humanities degree that also has a lot of like kinesthetic learning of like hands-on um, art workshops, writing craft workshops, um, and just like opportunities you don't always get at other schools. Um, like currently I'm in uh, Joshua Sinenko's uh, computational arts media lab. So that's very like tactile working with 3D printers, uh, virtual reality headsets. And that's, that was like really interesting to me. Um, and like, as for, as for the theoretical aspect of it, um, at the time I was also uh, really into philosophy. I was reading a lot of continental philosophy in grade mm -hmm. 12, which made me a really, uh, you know, really popular with the rest of my cohort, I'm sure. Nice. <laughs> um, but definitely that carried on into, um, you know, cultural studies and that carried an interest to me. This year I have been reading a lot of, I've been reading like Mark Fisher, uh, his mm -hmm. book, Capitalist Realism. Uh, I have been following Mackenzie Wark pretty closely. She just put out a new book um, about raving uh, and like rave culture in New York City, which I really want to get my hands on when it comes out. So yeah, those are where my interests lie. I would say a lot of like contemporary philosophy and a lot of um, kind of crossover with uh, gender and queer theory. Right. No, I <laughs> that, actually I'll admit part of the reason I asked that is um is I was wondering if there's any sort of Mark Fisher present in your life. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I was listening to some, I still kind of do now and again, but I was listening to this one podcast that comes out of Britain that's mainly about electronic music. But they had on somebody, this would be back in 2017, uh, just a month or two after he died, and uh, they had somebody on just saying all these things and like that he wrote about, dance music and electronic music and things like that. And that just really had me kind of interested. And I ended up like reading, I've read pretty much all his work by now, still have most of it with me. And so it's quite uh, things like capitalist realism, for example. Yeah. So, yeah. I just feel like he just had such a profound understanding of things in a way that uh few others have. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess uh, mainly I'm going to add what uh, I, I don't know if you can answer for all of it, but things that um, 
you know, a lot of students face these days, not just at Trent, but you could say all over the place. But uh, um, just though to the Arthur itself, um, I'm sure you sometimes have these like organized kind of room meetings of everyone. Um, what is uh, what? It, what do you think? Uh, it's maybe not changed much, for, but uh, what do you? What is the Arthur sort of seeing as its main goals or mission statement kind of things for for this year? Yeah, I think a lot has honestly changed in the last year just because we've had a turnover in editors. Um, Nick and Brazil, who were running Arthur when I came on, uh, you know, have moved on to other things. And now we have an editorial team consisting of uh, Beth and Bates and Sebastian Johnson Lindsay, who are the current uh, editors of Arthur. Uh, they're really good and they're really, you know, hands on in their approach and, you know, really interested in bringing the newspaper back uh, in a kind of accessible and tangible format that obviously wasn't um, available for students over the past two years of like the COVID-19 pandemic, because so much of that hampered our ability to produce like print issues and to do distribution through the conventional means of like on campus and in the downtown community. So yeah, we do have uh, meetings. We have story meetings every week, uh, a Friday at 3 p.m. in Sadler House. They're available for anyone to come. Uh, they're open to the public and community members and students alike can come and, you know, pitch ideas and talk about, uh, you know, their interests, what they want to publish and kind of get some mentorship from, uh, you know, some of the existing staff like me, like the senior journalists who mm -hmm. have been there for a while. So I think like the big goals of Arthur this year are definitely to get back into being a physical presence. We're trying to put out a print edition at the end of every month. Uh, so far, we've been really on track with that. And we actually put out two print editions during October, one for the municipal election mm -hmm. and one as our October edition. So that's <clears> been really interesting and has definitely changed the demands uh, that it takes of us writers because it's a, a higher turnover and, you know, there's more firm deadlines uh, to make sure that we're on top of uh, what's like happening in the Trent community at that moment. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there any sort of like area or de department kind of you are assigned to yourself or you could end up doing almost anything? Ultimately, if you're on contract at Arthur, it's kind of, you're left to forge your own destiny a little bit. Yeah, right. you, you have the ability to write about basically anything you want. But I do think like certain authors tend to work certain beats almost. Um, and it just depends on what they're interested in. Like I have colleagues who work uh, specifically a lot around like food security on campus and like like to cover for instance the season spoon and like to cover um you know developments like the recent closure of the planet and you know mm -hmm. their replacement with 76 sips uh i've been covering a lot of uh queer and trans issues on campus over the past couple years uh so that i guess has kind of become my beat but i you know don't like to kind of hamper um myself into just one lane so i think that's something that bethan and sebastian have been really good about is letting authors at arthur just explore uh their different interests and kind of uh go out of their lane 
uh, be wide in their coverage. And that way it doesn't feel like you're always constricted to the same like handful of topics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess on that note of you, like, uh, you know, you like to, like you said, you like to cover a bunch of different things, but in a queer and trans way, is there, um, is there any like sort of, do you, do you come away from what you've written on those like with uh a lot of kind of like um you feel like you have a better understanding of certain people and like uh you feel like um there's a there's a strong solid community or do you come away with it a bit worried about certain things as well i think it really depends on the nature of the story i mm-hmm. wrote an article um last april about um this ongoing uh, issue surrounding the renovation of a bathroom in Champlain College and the fight that students at the time were mounting to try and make it uh, like a gender neutral accessible washroom. Uh, And I think I came away from that article having interviewed a lot of people to try and kind of gather perspectives and testimony for that story. And it, you know, really made me feel connected to other students at Trent and made me feel like I came away from that having learned a lot about, uh, you know, queer students at Trent. But equally, there are times when, like, you begin doing research for a story and you come away from it, like, kind of with this feeling that, uh, you know, something's nagging at you, that you're, like, pulling at a string that is just, like, tightening a knot. And mm-hmm. I think some of the some of the stuff that I'm working on right now is really like that, where I've picked up a thread and it's just like everything leads into this utter mess. And you kind of come away from those pieces, definitely understanding people better, but mm-hmm. not necessarily in the kind of like hope inspiring way that um always I think more happens when I'm able to just like talk to people in interviews mm-hmm. and do you feel overall your your just stories you've done at Arthur just on a technical level do you feel like they've made you a better writer even though journalistic writing's different than perhaps what you're doing for cultural studies but yeah I certainly think so I think mm-hmm. especially like every year presents different demands and I think that's uh really invigorating as a writer like it, it really challenges you in the best possible way for mm-hmm. instance last year I was writing like really really long pieces I think the last piece I published on my prior school year contract was more than 4,000 words long uh, which is something you can get away with if you're writing for like a website, for instance, where the page layouts mm. don't matter as much. But right. with the return to like regular print editions, pagination is a huge concern. Right. And all of a sudden we're running up against these like 600, 900, uh, thousand word word caps where like to most people, it's like, okay, that's a very concrete goal. And to me, I'm like, I need to rein myself in. Right. Um, but it definitely, I think, has taught me a lot about um, different forms of expression, because if I'm writing a piece for a print is- uh, issue, that's going to be a completely different approach than if I'm writing something I know is going to go online. I have more or less leniency depending on where it's going to be published, depending on what 
uh, format it takes, whether it's an opinion piece, a news piece, uh, a satire piece, whatever, those all have different constraints and demands. And I also think just like having the experience of having written so many articles, uh, you not only begin to develop a style, um, which I think has definitely come through in my pieces. I think I've begun to write in a very like personal essay format um, where I kind of try and editorialize and narrate uh, events uh, that I talk about so that they're not so kind of clinical and divorced for um, uh, a lot of students. And, you know, I'm trying to bring people into uh, the heart of those issues. And I think also you just pick up technical things like when I first started, I was transcribing every interview I did by uh, like hand. I was, you know, listening to the recording track whilst typing up everything that uh, was said in the interview. And that process would take me like six to eight hours, depending on how long the interview was, uh, which was way longer than it took me to write most of those pieces. So now I've like figured out how to use like transcription tools. Now I've figured out, you know, how certain like syntax and stylistic choices can improve my writing flow. It just becomes like this very, um, like this process of kind of indexing all of these techniques so that when it comes time to write whatever piece you've just pitched, you're going to be able to do it quickly and efficiently and, you know, hopefully get it back without too many copy notes. Right. Okay. And Sorry, I, I want to get into uh, yeah, of course. day-to-day issues, but I do want to get into, I just can, can't help but ask this, especially as someone who's read a lot of continental philosophy. Um, so role of journalism, you know, traditionally it's just supposed to be neutral, hear both sides kind of thing. But there's also a lot of people that I respect in that and think part of a journalist's job it has to be you know, journalist slash activist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of way you see this kind of way of like, what is what is pro- proper for a journalist to be? Yeah, I, I definitely think uh, I tend to fall towards the latter. And I know mm-hmm. that's a tendency I have, but I think that's also just kind of an editorial choice at Arthur as a whole. I remember one of the first things uh, that we did when I was hired was that I had to go through um, anti-oppression training and journalistic training to kind of figure out how stuff works at Arthur and what, you know, our style is, uh, how the submission process works. But a big part of that um, was just my editors at the time, Nick in Brazil, uh, kind of drilling a couple of things into our head. And one of the first things that Nick Taylor uh, kind of told me was that... Uh, you can't ever be wholly objective in journalism. Like you can posture Mm -hmm. towards that, but ultimately journalism is a process of narrating events and there's going to be some sort of bias inherent to that. And especially on the level of journalism that we do it, which is very granular, uh, very communitarian, like it's inevitable that people are going to have opinions and biases they bring to writing an article. So I think I kind of take that to heart and really um, try and write in a way that articulates that, you know, there are indisputable facts in every situation, but there's equally a way of presenting it. 
And that is really where I find my writing tends to go. It's like the process of narrativizing those facts into an accessible form. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you may have not written about all of these things, but I'm sure you're aware of all of them and maybe you can offer some insight. Um, I'm sure it is a major issue, perhaps even a crisis, but is there any sense you have for 2022, 23, how much of a crisis affordable housing has been this year? A trend I, I, specific. Yeah. Crisis? I think it's a huge crisis, specifically um, a crisis that is like localized within Peterborough. Obviously, the Canadian housing market as a whole is, you know, continually growing and thus becoming more and more unaffordable for those who, you know, don't have startup capital or like make hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, uh, both of which most students don't have. Um, but in Peterborough specifically, I would say it's really bad. I think there's just like so many factors conspiring to create this problem. And certainly I think it's particular to trend itself. A big thing I saw this year is that a lot of first years were unable to secure housing on campus. And to me, that's really indicative of a structural problem at Trent Mm. because for years now, that's been one of their big assurances is that you come to Trent University, you apply, you get accepted, and every first year is guaranteed a spot in residence. Mm-hmm. So what it tells me that all of these first years are, you know, going to the Peterborough subreddit, going to other forums online, going to Arthur, going to all of these places saying like, I don't have a place to live. That indicates to me Trent was not able to meet that demand this year and that seems a fundamental failure to their students because they're the ones bringing students to these like to this city and if students come here and suddenly don't have a place to live that's only going to you know that is going to be extremely bad for those students in question and it also only serves to worsen and to perpetuate the effects of like the housing crisis in this city because you know we as students are competing for housing with permanent residents of Peterborough too. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of landlords seem to prefer renting to students, which is not necessarily fair or just, but it is just how the way things are. Uh, And students are also, you know, uh, fairly easy to exploit in the eyes of a lot of landlords. You see rent going up like crazy, Mm -hmm. even from, when I signed the lease for the house I'm currently in, I've mm-hmm. seen rent shoot up by like hundreds of dollars at this point. Um, and it's just going to hit a point eventually where it's no longer sustainable. And we're already seeing that this year, you know, Peterborough Currents, I ran an article about uh, several Trent and Fleming students who tried to access the Yes shelter because they didn't have access to permanent housing. And I suspect if anything, that number is only going to go up uh, come next semester, come the next years as Trent continues to look to increase enrollment. So it's a massive problem now and one that doesn't seem like anyone is addressing. So in my eyes, it's only going to continue to get worse. Yes. Uh, yeah, that story about... Um, yes, shelter that Peterborough Currents did. Yeah, it was important, but also quite 
quite terrible. Um, and, um, is there a certain like geographical, well, like people can't find housing, first year student, you, you're, you can't get on campus. Is there a certain geographical area of the city there that is like that used to be maybe just a hundred percent residential is now kind of like being, has a lot of students in them, whether five or six in one location and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think in previous years, you'd see most of the students kind of localized within the area around Aylmer Street. So Mm -hmm. between like Edinburgh and Dublin and like uh, Mm -hmm. between like Water and Aylmer, Mm -hmm. um, that whole area has a kind of reputation as being uh, like a good place for students to live, a pretty affordable place for students to live. And just like a lot of students are said to live there. However, definitely as like housing has proved less and less accessible, I've definitely seen a lot of students kind of spreading elsewhere. Like as it stands, I live on Park Hill Road, just on like the boundary of East City. And I would definitely say students are beginning to, you know, look for property on East Bank, which I don't feel like they normally would have as much, you know, two, five, ten years ago. And they're beginning to look further south, uh, you know, closer to Lansdowne, uh, even further north into the west around like the Shimong area. But just Mm -hmm. as a whole, I think it's kind of indicative of the model that Peterborough as a city is taking in its municipal development. There's not really densification happening. Like even the new builds in downtown like Wylocks are not particularly uh, dense. They're not affording more people housing. They're just using that space to satisfy a relatively small demand for housing. Um, and there's no like new apartment buildings going up that would prove affordable spaces for students to live. Instead, where you see expansion happening is in these subdivisions, you know, off Television Road, mm-hmm. off Shamong, like way out in the middle of nowhere. And the problem with that is, of course, it's not student-friendly in the slightest uh it has no meaningful access to transit which means it's basically impossible for any student who doesn't have a car to commute from some of these subdivisions to campus and you know by catering at students with cars you're already basically saying that you know you don't want a certain uh like income bracket of students to attend your school if you're just like structurally making it inaccessible for students that don't can't afford to rent in the downtown core to drive a car to school like all of these are costs and they form a kind of selection pattern as to which kind of students are able to go to trent uh even if you know the demographic that wants to attend is way broader than that select view Okay. All right. Well, as terrible as that is, I'm wondering even on another level of basic need of survival besides housing is food. Is there a lot of cases of students just not being able to provide themselves with enough food, like using food banks and so on? Yeah. Uh, food insecurity is a massive problem as mm-hmm. it stands. Uh, it's actually something I've been working on as a long form piece. I've been uh, kind of investigating food security and just like the options that are available to Trent students uh, in the form of like 
you know, shopping, food services on campus, all of that. Uh, there was a report that came out in, I believe, April of 2021 um, about the effects of the uh, novel coronavirus pandemic on food scarcity uh, among trans students. And what that found is that food scarcity is a massive problem. More than a third of trans students are food insecure, mm-hmm. with a considerable portion among that third being considered uh, moderately food insecure and even, you know, a considerable percentage of those being considered severely food insecure. Uh, that's a considerable portion of your entire student body. Like 33% of students with even some of those being considered at higher risk than just like generally food insecure. That is not a good, uh, look. And I think the thing is, you are seeing that Trent students, you know, have to rely on uh, food banks or initiatives like uh, the TCSA has just implemented. I think they call it their one stop shop, mm. uh, which is kind of like an accessible food pantry. But even I think it's a huge problem among off campus students. That's why you see the programs like the community fridge. Uh, that started up last year. I think a lot of students use food, not bombs, because, um, you know, food insecurity is obviously going to be more pronounced among off-campus students who are paying rent on top of tuition and all of the other expenses and don't have, like, ready access to uh, food services on campus all the time. But it's definitely something that has gotten... Uh, worse in the past several years. And I don't fully buy that the pandemic is the only reason that food insecurity is worsened. When you examine the fact that cost of living in general is increasing, you know, the housing crisis obviously ties in and feeds a food insecurity crisis because housing is the first expense most people go to pay. Um, so people will try and go without food for a period of time if it means being able to make their rent payments. And as rent increases, that's going to amplify, uh, you know, that problem. It's going to make it worse. And I think that's what we're beginning to see now. And I doubt that we've seen kind of the peak of it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I, I would agree with you what you're saying about it, COVID not being the cause. I think what COVID has done for a lot of things is an intensification mm-hmm. of what was already there. And I think that's the case both with what you're saying about housing and food, uh, food shortage. Um, now, like a lot of smaller universities in Ontario, Trent got in this satellite campus business uh, a while back and uh, there's Trent Oshawa. And I was, I, I was picking up, well, I'm on the board of Trent Radio, so mm-hmm. I was picking up that there's, um, you know, n- nobody there is listening to Trent Radio or even knows about it. And I've, I've been there before, like for other sort of job duties and too. It's a quite a bit of a, sadly, um, a bit of a lifeless place to be. And, uh, I also, I don't have any numbers in front of me, but I, I'm highly suspect that a large percentage of the students there are international students. Um, I don't know if there's anything 
um, you know about of Trent Oshawa or how their issues are perhaps somewhat differ from the main campus or anything like that? Yeah, I think Trent, like the Durham campus is a really interesting uh, case study because it has different problems than the Peterborough campus does by virtue of being in a different city. But a lot of its problems are, I think, more or less directly as a result of Trent. Like, uh, Trent Durham seems to me to be a very, like, a pet project of the current administration. It's something that's seen considerable development during uh, Leo Grok's uh, presidency of Trent mm-hmm. University. And I think it's a project that I don't see a lot of purpose in. Um, I mean, that's not to say that, uh, students in Oshawa should not have a place to go, but a lot of the kind of satellite campuses you see, uh, thriving belong to considerably larger universities, like the University of Toronto, like McGill, Mm -hmm. that have the ability to establish, like, fully, um, independent campuses that don't really require sustenance from what many would consider their principal campus. And that's just not the case for Trent Durham. Like Durham depends exceedingly on the existence of the Peterborough campus to define itself, to give itself meaning. I know a lot of uh, students who live in uh, residence at Trent Durham campus and have to commute to Simon's campus in Peterborough, which strikes me as perhaps an indictment that that campus doesn't have a lot to offer in the programming that is available to students there should they have to come to uh, Peterborough, which, you know, as it stands, is like a two-hour trip by go bus um, Mm -hmm. just in order to attend classes here. Uh, And I think, like, even some of that rings through in the implementation of residence because for years, Trent Durham didn't have residence uh, the residence building is a relatively new thing, having only opened in like the past couple of years. And you just don't see that it has the kind of amenities that you would expect from a university residence. A lot of the amenities come in the form of like, oh, here's a pass to use Ot- Oshawa's community centers. And that's not really an excuse. Yes. Like, it just kind of smacks of Trent deciding that they wanted to build the satellite campus, uh, deciding that they needed to provide infrastructure for students to live there full time, but then trying to find cost-cutting measures wherever possible, and this one being in the form of just, you know, pawning off the necessity of a lot of uh, the amenities and community you would find in a typical university campus to the city of Oshawa, which like fundamentally should not be their problem. Uh, they didn't build the university campus there. Uh, and I think you're right. There are a lot of international students there. Uh, we actually just ran a piece in this past October issue, highlighting that issue, highlighting the inordinate cost of living at Oshawa campus, which I believe is only $500 less than living in Peterborough and doesn't really really seem to provide any advantages to justify like the like similarity of that cost. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Trent Oshawa is a very interesting uh, 
project to look at because I think it's one that is beginning to show its cracks even a little prematurely. Mm. Um, and I'm just not convinced as to its utility for uh, like Trent. It doesn't seem to mesh with the idea Trent tries to promote themselves on of being this like Peterborough centric, you know, forested, beautiful, outdoorsy environmental campus with, you know, a river running through it. When you compare that to Durham campus, which, you know, is right next to the 401 in the middle of downtown Oshawa, near Oshawa Go, like I've been there. It's kind of a, a liminal space. It just feels like any car park in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not the same experience that you were sold on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I walked through it and it's like two different buildings with not that many different classrooms. I think they have a lot of arts and humanities, but uh, mainly, but uh, it's uh, yeah, it just doesn't really have much of a, a community atmosphere. And you're right. It's just like a lot, a parking lot kind of thing. Like it just uh, it's kind of a faceless feel to it. Yeah, um, and they're really like removed, I think, from as you point out, like no one in Durham listens to Trent Radio. Yeah. Very few people at Durham campus listen to or read Arthur. And mm-hmm. I think like we've looked at trying to get distribution to go out there, but it's not particularly feasible because either we have to figure out a way to, you know, send a portion of our papers from our printers to the Durham residents. Or else we need to send someone on the go bus to Mm -hmm. go to Oshawa to deliver papers by hand. And that's not (laughs) particularly feasible. Like there's this thriving levy group community that exists in Peterborough and forms Mm -hmm. this real network and community that um, brings such a vibrance to the town and to the Trent community. And Trent students at uh, the Durham campus just don't have that. I think, you know, they exist in a completely different cohort. And so to be like a Trent Durham student is necessarily to be something different than a Trent University student um, because you belong to a different group. And I think they're kind of reminded of that uh, constantly through the sheer isolation. And that's really heartbreaking to me because, you know, I think we as students who are... Uh, at the whim of the same administration as them have things in common and would like to advocate for them. Uh, but it is just like so difficult to do so when you each are facing different problems as well as shared problems. But there is such a space between you both like physically, uh, and in terms of like the community circles that are afforded to you. Mm-hmm. And well, you're just mentioning this a bit, and this is something that happens on, you know, all post-secondary institutions in Canada, rather sadly, this, what we do to international students, you send people over there, you recruit them, India or whatever, give them these false premises, like give them a huge cost, like what well, they're paying, what, three, four, five times as much as people here. And giving them this idea that they'll be finding like a set career and, um, you know, all they want right here. I don't know. Is there anything, um, is there any, like, have you been able to 
you yourself or the Arthur has been able to reach out and hear their voice uh, itself, international students? Oh, definitely. I think international mm-hmm. student issues have been a big point of focus. Uh, definitely last year, we ran several pieces, I want to say like two or three over the course of our kind of uh, school year, like our print year, which runs from September to kind of March, April, depending on uh, <laughs> the number of hours mm-hmm. that our writers have available at the end of the semester. Right. Um, but also uh, just uh, recently, like a month or two ago, uh, Nick Taylor, former editor of Arthur, released their final article, which is a 5,000 word expose about the kind of inner workings of Trent International. And it's a really excellent piece. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's definitely worth um, the time investment. And I think, you know, a lot of the coverage of Trent University or of Trent International that we've been doing over the past several years really tries to incorporate the testimony of international students and to hear their voices. But yeah, like international student issues are massive uh, as a point of like focus because Trent University is doing everything in its power to internationalize. You consider the fact Mm. that, you know, each year they try and bring in more international students while simultaneously putting up the cost of tuition for international students. Uh, It's quite telling as to what the motives there might be. And on top of that, they are constantly expanding their partnerships with other international students, which, you know, further serves uh, their goal of internationalization. One need not look further than like the Trent Swansea program, which, uh, Mm. you know, serves well the purpose of internationalizing and really offers both of of those schools uh, the opportunity to almost exchange uh, that kind of international capital while making a lot of money off of the heads of those students in the program. And I think you begin to see this as part of like the problem at Trent University where like Trent wants to be uh, a meaningful school, wants to have meaningful programs like law, uh, like medicine, whatever. But their solution to that is not to recruit the faculty necessarily at uh, and invest the resources that would it would take to create those departments, it's to send their students abroad. So it becomes a two-pronged problem, wherein on the one hand, Trent University is bringing in a bunch of students uh, from abroad to do their undergraduates here in Canada to pay exorbitant international tuition fees. And on the other hand, they're then shipping students who did their undergraduates the you know domestic students who did their undergraduates here off to the likes of you know swansea university for Mm. med students the university of grenada and all of these programs that they have partnerships with um as basically you know the solution to the fact that uh trent is not investing in their graduate school options so it's really like a problem that you know is compounded on two fronts and uh, it, uh, necessitates a lot of resources to think about it that way because like international student issues uh, are classically thought of as just like students coming here 
but it's a whole industry and it has so many layers to it that it becomes this really difficult uh, thing to reckon with. Yeah, uh, it is. I definitely will make note of uh, Nick Taylor's article because, yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I, I, I know he's a really great writer about what you said he wrote on international students. So I'll mention that in my show notes. But um, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of still great things about Trent, but uh, it's definitely moved away from what the original idea was back in the 1960s, definitely. Um, So uh, just thinking sort of more of short-term profit and Mm -hmm. not the long-term. But I would not, I would not be apt if I did not mention maybe in some ways the biggest issue for a lot of Trent students on a daily basis is this inept service from Peterborough Transit. Mm I think I was talking with Will Pearson from Peterborough Currents just last week. I think it was November 2nd. He said that day alone had 50, 50 cancellations. So I just wondering, uh, that, I mean, that if you're saying a lot of people are living away from campus, that has, this has to be a big issue of people coming late to class and all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly. It's even a problem for people who relatively like don't live that far from campus in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I often say that Peterborough is a small town and nothing is not walkable, but the position of Trent University so far north of the city definitely makes it one of the least accessible places to get to in Peterborough. So if you're not serviced by a major major bus route, you're definitely going to face issues considering the amount of like transit problems there have been uh, in the past little while. Even recently, uh, Peterborough Transit just announced their new transportation schedule which consists of uh, innumerable bus cancellations and changes to regular service so the number nine park hill one of the routes that um, i used to get to campus on east bank is now no longer running after uh 7:30 in the evening i believe and has been changed to an on-demand wow. service so wow. that effectively cuts in half the number of routes that go to trent from the East Bank. And mm. there's a not inconsiderable number of students who live on East Bank or else who would use the nine uh, to get to, you know, places uh, further down Park Hill Road West where mm. not a lot of other buses go. Right. So even a few select cancellations will prove, uh, you know, massively problematic for students because as it's set up, uh, there's this extremely delicate balance in the transit system, wherein for it to work under the current model, everything needs to run consistently all the time. And that's not what we've been seeing. And I think a lot of this, I would put directly to blame on the city of Peterborough. I don't begrudge the bus drivers um, who are having to endure like the current working conditions. Uh, I talked to a bus driver the other day who told me that he had to work 300 hours of overtime uh, because of the uh, service disruptions and the technical issues that have been plaguing transit and just the fact that um, attrition is really hitting Peterborough Transit hard and they are not replacing drivers uh, fast enough to essentially make up for the lack of drivers, meaning existing drivers have to work way more 
and are mm-hmm. not being paid an amount that reflects the amount of effort they're putting in. Um, but there's a real tendency to just be like, oh, you know, this is the bus driver's fault, whereas they're, you know, just as much of uh, the victims of this as ourselves. But yeah, there's massive problems with um, uh, the way even that the closure information is being disseminated. Like I, as a student, shouldn't have to rely on the Peterborough Transit Twitter to know whether or not the bus I'm about to take home has been canceled. Like that's not reasonable. Um, (laughs) Because as well, it's demanding students use a third party platform to engage with one of their municipal services. Like that seems ridiculous to me. And there are often instances where uh, either there's no announcement of a cancellation and a bus just won't show up or, you know, mm-hmm. 10 minutes before the scheduled bus is supposed to come, you'll see an announcement on Twitter that says that that route has been canceled for the rest of the day. And then you have 10 minutes to get to rent university. So if you don't have a car, you're basically going to miss at least the first half hour of class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're on the East Bank. That's quite a, yeah. Um yeah, I would say I, a lot of res- things that happen in our municipal election, you could argue, don't really di- directly affect French students. But one mm-hmm. is this transit issue. That's one, definitely one exception. And it sounds like from what I early tendencies of the new mayor, Jeff Leal, that they are thinking of this on demand service intensifying more even. So, yeah. And yeah, these driver shortages, plus the fact that, uh, I think as of tomorrow, unless something has happened today, that there'll be no, uh, the go bus drivers will be on strike as well. So yeah. Yeah. Um, well, on a more lighter, um, <laughs> lighter topic, but still important for a big coffee drinker like myself. Uh, what are these new non Starbucks options I hear that are popping up on campus? I was reading about that, uh, in the Arthur lately. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely there are a lot of options now available to students who drink coffee on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the past couple of years, it's only been Starbucks just because uh, that was the only thing that was open over the course of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But now yeah. that we're seeing, um, you know, more and more stuff opening up and, <laughs> you know, as much as I may have problems with Trent University's kind of unequivocal everything is open plan, uh, at least it has brought coffee back in a big form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I began to notice it last year with like Electric City uh, reopened its booth in Zosky. So you were able to get uh, coffee there. And now 76 Sips has opened just this year in the Athletic Center. Uh, I go there a lot. It's quite good. Um so huge shout out to them. And of course, the Bata Bean is back open, uh, mm, which is right, yes. a huge deal, I think, because it's in a such a good location. I mean, uh, the Bata Bean is in, Bata itself is such a beautiful building, and it's mm-hmm. in such a central location uh, that it proves really, <laughs> really convenient, considering most of the time Starbucks has like a minimum 20-minute lineup. Mm-hmm. Um and is also still a bit of a walk from the bad bus loop. So to literally be able to get coffee 
um, at not a library and walk out and be at your bus. Uh, that's a game changer. It's it's really good to have that option back. Right. Yeah. No. That's okay. Well, that that's good to hear. Um, now, am I correct? You're mentioning things about the president before. Am I correct in saying that, like most, like uh, board meetings at Trent are like closed door affairs, and you, the Arthur, don't have access to what's being said? Yeah. Besides maybe the student representatives who are elected or whatever that has been the case you need to Mm -hmm. jump through a lot of hoops in able to get uh in able to be able to get into the board of governors meetings uh we are Mm -hmm. able to technically get into them uh but in a lot of cases it's very difficult to report on them because there's not like a publicly available transcription of the meetings available and you know they all happen under very yeah closed doors uh very much a kind of in-camera feel to them and it's something that at arthur has proved really difficult because you need to be super up on when they're happening to be able to jump through the hoops in requisite time in order to be able to express your intent in attending and then they'll let you into a zoom meeting and uh uh be able to attend Mm -hmm. uh so it's definitely something that especially as it usually falls to the editors to cover that um has been very difficult in terms of maintaining schedules but i do think uh yeah the board of governors are an interesting body because not a lot of other municipal outlets report on them um, because frankly, I feel like a lot of other municipal outlets don't feel like what the Board of Governors does has a meaningful impact on the city. But mm-hmm. I don't really think that's the case. If you look at the Trent University Board of Governors, it is constituted of a number of fairly high profile community members. Uh, there's a really good episode of the Arthur podcast Growing Pains uh, mm-hmm. that ran last year which goes into kind of the uh, profile of each member of the Board of Governors sitting at that time. And Mm. I think that affords a great deal of insight into their structures and operation and the kind of motivations they have uh, and might allow one to draw conclusions around like why Trent University operates in the way it does. It's a lot of business people as Mm -hmm. opposed to um, the kind of pre-2003 governance that Trent largely saw from the Senate, which was faculty-driven and really like with student and faculty interests at heart. And I think the reality is a lot of the Board of Governors don't know what the student experience is like, and it often comes off as if they don't care. Um, Because, yeah, they are this like uh, committee which seems to operate without much in the way of supervision. And I doubt many Trent students know that they operate or play such a large role in their student experience at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that regard, uh, covering their meetings and making sure we're up to speed on what's happening with them uh, is really important for Arthur because it's what allows us to uh, you know, break these really important meetings that are, are news that 
literally nobody else hears about it sometimes. Like last year, the tuition increase for out-of-province students uh, was a last-minute thing that we heard about just because uh, one of the Arthur editors was attending a Board of Governors mm-hmm. meeting. Not even the TCSA knew it was going to happen. Um, so definitely it's one of these things where massive things can happen. Massive decisions can be made, which have knock on consequences for the student body, but that are more or less, uh, left kind of unacknowledged because, uh, it is so difficult to really see what the board of governors are up to. Mm. Yes, I, it is difficult, but I hope, uh, that's, one battle the Arthur can win because I do feel, yeah, that's kind of essential to at least uh, give the public insight on what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess uh, finally, do you feel like there is any important uh, issues, Trent issues that I've missed out on? That I've... Oh, that's a, that is a really good question. And, and, I mean, yeah. I think as it stands, like all of the issues uh, that we've talked about so far can kind of mm. be drawn back to the history of trends industrializing. I think mm-hmm. that's a part, uh, like a point Arthur has really hammered home in the past couple of years. And I think it bears repeating simply because like Trent is not the school that they tell you it is. And it's not the school that it once was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the really interesting thing about knowing so many community members and like, spending any amount of time in Peterborough and beginning to talk to like Trent alumni is that you come to this understanding that there was a time when Trent was closer to what it advertises itself as. There was a time when every student at Trent lived on campus when it was like a proper collegiate school belonging to Mm -hmm. the Oxbridge tradition to which it, uh, you know, prides itself on claiming it belongs to. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a time on campus when every college had its own pub where every college was a social hub and where we weren't being served food from like this conglomerate that is uh compass group and it's uh uh chartwell's division which runs the catering service at trent Mm -hmm. Uh, there were times when professors lived on campus there were times when programs were able to offer a lot more uh there were times when things in terms of like transit and housing were less of an issue because Trent structurally had emphasized the student experience and emphasized this idea of like a living and learning community, something which kind of insipidly has kept its name into this uh, function of, into this uh, thing that exists in housing now where living learning communities are like tiny pods nested within the college system of like, oh, this is the forensic science living learning community, uh, as opposed to the whole campus being thought of as a community of unified students here to live and learn together. Um, So I think examining why Trent has shifted away from that uh, is really indicative of the root cause of a lot of these issues. Um, as, As well as that, I tend to think that a big uh, problem like concerning all uh, students at Trent right now is its relationship to the city. Uh, Mm -hmm. Going back to the fact that Trent in its inception 
was not just like this collegiate school, but specifically a school which was built uh, from wages of workers at the General Electric plant. Like that's Mm -hmm. a huge, huge legacy it has to live up to because Trent as it exists today is not really serving the community in the way that it was intended to when those workers agreed to defer a portion of their wages to build a school in their city. Uh, Trent exists as very atomized from the rest of Peterborough. And I think students don't necessarily think of themselves as Peterborough residents all of the time. I think the kind of blame game that has come out of this year's past homecoming parties and like the (laughs) destruction they caused is really indicative that Trent doesn't really see itself as part of the community and doesn't really see itself as owing Peterborough anything. Uh, Mm. So I think that as a whole has profound effects on the student experience. Like if students don't think of themselves as part of this community, uh, they are going to be more divorced from the issues at hand in the community. And ultimately that's bad for them because if students don't care about Mm. the Peterborough housing crisis, it will impact their lives regardless. If Peter, if students don't care about food insecurity in Peterborough, they will still feel its effects. So it has to like be said that students caring about the city they live in is essential for them to be able to have a good student experience and to kind of realize the breadth of the problems that are facing their school. Uh, because otherwise they're just going to continue to, you know, try and live in ignorant bliss until such time as it becomes painfully obvious that they can't ignore it anymore. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent way of putting it. I didn't really want to bring up as Trent home experience, but um, I I got to it. I, since I don't live too far away from where I kind of, I love a lot of it was happening that night. I got to see a little bit of it, but I think (laughs) it's uh I think it, it this idea of uh uh yeah Trent uh being kind of in this uh, divorce position from Peterborough and and vice versa it runs two ways I I don't recall mm-hmm. Trent at, or even Fleming being mentioned in any questions given to any mayoral candidates or council candidates even um so yeah that sadly is I think uh kind of uh quite symbolic of it would happen there. Um, well, anyway, well, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Evan, I'll try and, uh, put this together the next day and, uh, um, get it ready. Um, uh, and, uh, just, is there, is there any particular, uh, reading of Mark Fisher's that you've enjoyed the most? Uh, I think honestly, capitalist realism is probably my favorite one. Right. <laughs> I think uh very classic text and mm-hmm. it's always uh very prescient when talking about any kind of political movement. I think there certainly is a kind of element of capitalist realism at hand in uh the current problems plaguing Trent in that I think a lot of students find it easier to like imagine just the end of the institution of Trent itself, as opposed to imagine there having been a better time and imagine like a solution to those problems. Uh, mm-hmm. There's kind of just a mindset that it's going to continue to get worse. Right. 
right? And uh, right. If you probably already have read this, but yeah, I, I would suggest on a kind of a maybe more of an allegorical way, I guess uh, the weird and the eerie, I think, yes. sort of strikes a bit that way too. Yes, yes, yes. But yes, yeah. thank you so much for having me. It's been a yes. pleasure. Yes, no, thank you very much. You gave me a lot of insight there. Um, yeah, I, I uh, currently don't have too much connection with uh, Trent, so I just wanted to make sure I was uh, keeping up <laughs> with things. And uh, yeah, and uh, the Arthur itself, of course. Yeah. So uh, good luck, and I hope that uh, good luck to your year this year, and I hope that uh, the Arthur keeps going strong. Thank you. All right. <laughs>